This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we have an absolute legend of a man on the show. Ed Stafford is one of the world's most famous survivalists and explorers, and he's going to be telling us the story of the expedition that made his name. It's one of the boldest, craziest, most dangerous journeys ever undertaken. Most people thought he was going to die. He nearly did, but he survived. And the story he brought back with him is one of the greatest adventure tales ever told. We are about to walk the entire length of the Amazon River on foot. He was the first person on the planet to do it. He holds the Guinness World Record for that. And my God, did he earn it. Get ready for angry, machete-wielding indigenous Indians, narco-drug traffickers, floods, bugs, and 4,345 miles of the toughest terrain on the planet. Ed Stafford is a star of numerous Discovery Channel TV series. He's been naked and marooned. He's been left for dead in just about every inhospitable place on Earth. And his new show, which I think is my favorite, is called First Man Out, which is kicking off in the UK at second series on Discovery Channel on September 24th at 9 p.m. if you're listening in real time. And if you're listening in the future, do we have hover cars yet? Well, I know what you do have. We have Ed Stafford's new series, so go check that out. It's also available in the States and around the world. Just search up First Man Out and you'll find it. So we're just about to set off. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help support it by spreading the word. Leave a review, tell a friend, connect on social media at Aaron M. Writer, at Armchair Explorer Podcast for Facebook. And I'd also love it if you'd sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com where you can find lots of background photo info and more on this episode as well as book trips inspired by the show. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors and want to celebrate the amazingness of this planet by exploring every inch of it. If that sounds like you, come and hang out. We're going to get on well. But for now... Don't worry about that because we are about to go on an incredible adventure. And we're going to start in China with Ed telling us the story of that first episode of the new series, First Man Out. And let's just say it's bonkers. So I was up against Will Lord. It was the first time I'd ever been to China. Um, We were dropped into quite a relatively high altitude um, um, area, but not not snow, but it was also monsoon season. So it's bucketed down with rain. For some reason, I've packed the most rubbish, thin Gore-Tex jacket that I've ever worn on any show. And it was, you know, it's, even if I'd gone on a dog walk and it had rained, I would have been annoyed with myself. Here's a man who's led expeditions all around the world, walked the length of the Amazon River, been marooned on desert islands and made to escape from places that would literally kill most of us. And yet, when it comes down to it, he's only gone and brought the wrong jacket. I mean, that's what you got to love about Ed, isn't it? He's real. He just is. He's a real bloke. Chatting with him is like having a beer down the pub with one of your mates. 
if your mate was prepared to, you know, eat giant snails raw, swim in croc-infested waters and explore pitch-black caves with nothing but a flimsy fire torch you've just made out of something random and might extinguish at any moment. Yeah, that happens. It was quite a rugged landscape. There were lots of sort of karst areas and jagged rocks and, you know, caves to explore and, and, and sort of dead ends to get trapped in and stuff like that. And, um, um, sort of played to the sort of character difference between me and Will um, because he, he, I would never be able to match him in terms of the skill set that he's got. But um, yeah, it was a privilege to go up against him. It was, it was ridiculous conditions. It was hard. First Man Out is like Tough Mudder in hell. Each episode, Ed races one of the world's best survivalists or extreme outdoor athletes over multiple days across horrendously difficult terrain, sleeping out in the wild, building shelters and finding food as he goes. But Will Lord is actually amazing in this. He deserves his own series, I reckon. He calls himself Will Lord of the Stone Age and he's basically like a modern day caveman. Well, actually forget the modern day he's basically a caveman and that's what makes this series really interesting it pits different skill sets different types of survival experts against ed in the most horrific grueling race you can imagine in this episode it's like stone age bushcraft versus ed's flimsy gore-tex jacket through a maze of impenetrable jungle mountains and sinkholes in the middle of the monsoon with only food and water you source along the way for five days without shelter except what you can build. Needless to say, it's great TV. But this is where Ed is now and what we're going to do is go back 12 years to 2008 and where it all began because all the different things that he's done and he's been a huge success of course, the TV series, the documentaries, the bestsellers, they all came off the back of one crazy idea. Maybe the maddest, most audacious adventure that's ever been dreamed up to be the first person in history to walk the entire length of the Amazon River. And what we'll learn through his story is that what it took to succeed is far more than physical endurance. It took a complete shift in the way Ed thought about himself and the world around him. Because this isn't just a story about surviving in one of the world's most inhospitable environments. It's a story about surviving yourself. And that's something we all need to learn how to do, no matter what adventures or expeditions or mountains we seek to climb. I joined the army probably because um, I didn't want to get a proper job. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I didn't want... I, already at that stage, I sort of had this fear of London and just becoming a number in this big system, which it was very intimidating and I didn't really want to be a part of. Um, I didn't like the army as much as I thought I would. So I left, I left, uh, if I'm honest, and then um, I came out of that. I think it, I didn't really know who I was yet at this time. You know, I was, I was in my mid-twenties. I hadn't really come into myself, I thought because a lot of other officers leave the army and become stockbrokers or estate agents. Um, that, that, that was a route, but I, I, I was a bit lost. And, I, and it was only because I couldn't get one of those jobs that I, I consulted this list of jobs that um, were being offered to um, people leaving the army. And one of them was expedition leader in Belize. And, and um, it was to lead a jungle expedition for gap year students um, to do conservation work. And I thought, brilliant, I'll do that for three months and it's a bit of fun and um, I've never looked back, really. It's just uh, changed my life. It did change his life. Isn't that 
kind of great example, by the way, of just taking a risk, you know, following your guts and your passion and doing something that you love instead of something that you should. He writes, I was paid a pittance, but I fell in love with the adventure, the people and the lifestyle. Dreams of a Porsche 911 and fancy wine bars full of Essex girls slipped away. Which was lucky, because after a number of years of leading expeditions in Belize, Ed had his crazy idea. So it's safe to say that what he was about to enter was as far away from Essex wine bars as you could possibly get. But his reasons for doing it are different than what you might expect. I was in my early 30s, but I might as well have been in my 20s. I was quite a sort of angry young man who wanted to sort of beat his chest and prove to the world how tough he was. And I... um I was still quite immature when I started it and, and when I was planning for it. And, 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 and I think there was a lot of ego involved in wanting to be the first. I, you know, I was adopted and therefore I, um, I had this insecurity. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, capable enough. And I think I needed to prove on a very, very global stage that I was tough and that I, I could do stuff like that. I think, um, I think it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. It knocked a lot of the arrogance out of me. It humbled me time and time again. And um, I think it made me a much better version of myself um, initially, although it also highlighted to me that I wasn't as, um, as psychologically sound as I thought I was. You know, I found it difficult. I, was, I wasn't emotionally stable. Okay, so this is interesting, and I absolutely love Ed's honesty and transparency. It's really inspiring, and I think helpful for all of us to hear, so I really thank him for that. It started for egotistical reasons, he says, to be the first, to prove something to the world. But in the end, what really mattered was how it humbled him, how it changed him, how it enabled him to get past all that and find a deeper and truer and more authentic version of himself. Adventure is the crucible, he says, in which you find yourself. Adventure is the crucible in which you find yourself. And what Ed found walking the Amazon wasn't all good, but it enabled him to see it for the first time, to really see those sides of himself, which are so often invisible to us. And in doing that, he was able to move past them and grow. And that's what this story is really about. Well, that... And angry machete-wielding indigenous Indians, narco-drug traffickers, floods, bugs, and 4,000 miles of the toughest jungle terrain on the planet. But that's to come. For now, he roped in a buddy of his, a fellow expedition leader called Luke, found some people crazy enough to back them, and set off. They were going to walk the Amazon. But first, they had to reach its source, 18,000 feet up in the Peruvian Andes, on the summit of a mountain called Nevada Mismi. Nevada Mismi is 5,600 metres tall, so starting to get up into the realms of altitude sickness and stuff like that. We, um, we could have driven... I, I read a, a report from John Ridgway's expedition who, who went the length of the Amazon on cargo boats and stuff, that they, they drove to a roadhead which was seven kilometres away from the, the summit. So you could, you could have gone to the source by just a 7K walk, which obviously you do in a day, um, from the road, but... Um, There'd been a South African um, explorer called Mike Horn, um, who also did the route and, and went down the Amazon on a boogie board. And he started at the Pacific coast. And I didn't want to be outdone by Mike Horn, I think. So we had a three-week trek, which at the time was the furthest trek I'd ever done in my life. Just got to interrupt here. 
three weeks is the longest trek he's done. What? So even getting to the source of the Amazon, not even really officially part of the journey yet, just making sure he's not outdone by the boogie border, which, by the way, sounds amazing too, doesn't it? Boogie boarding the Amazon. I've got to get that guy on this show. But just that three weeks getting to the start was the longest ever trek he'd done. And yet he signed up to walk for what would end up being two and a half years of his life. That's bonkers. And that's why you've got to love Ed. And what's even more bonkers is that before the expedition started, Luke and Ed were based in London. They could have easily popped over to the Royal Geographical Society to get the official coordinates for the official furthest source of the Amazon. But they didn't. They went to Wikipedia. No joke. So unsurprisingly, when they got there, the coordinates they had were completely wrong. They ended up climbing the wrong mountain, having to backtrack to find the right one, which at 18,000 plus feet, by the way, with no mountaineering experience, is pretty crazy in itself. And then climb all the way somehow to the glaciers on its summit and the source of the Amazon. But when they finally got there, it was worth all the effort. What a feeling, you know, knowing that there isn't there isn't any more water behind you or above you or whatever in the, for, for the next... You, I was already realising, even though I thought it was going to take a year initially, I was already realising it was going to be about two years by that stage and it's just going to be this this whole new life, you know? It's not really just a journey. It's not really an A to B. It's, it's a new life almost. Um, I'm going to be living this and washing in the rivers every night for, for the next two years of my life. So it was, yeah, it was a special moment. Just imagine being Ed up there for a second. You've hiked three weeks from the Pacific coast in the rain shadow of the Andes through desert and mountains. You've climbed to 18,000 feet and now spread out before you, just a trickle here. But thousands of miles later, a rushing torrent that pumps out water at 55 million gallons a second is the Amazon River, the greatest river in the world. And you're going to walk every single inch of it. So from the summit of Nevado Mismi, the adventure really began. Luke and Ed descended Colca Canyon, the second deepest canyon in the world, sheer walls twice the height of the Grand Canyon, and gradually made their way to the edge of the jungle proper. But through all of this, Luke and him started having problems. They had been walking now for roughly three months, and they weren't getting on well. They had different ideas about what the expedition should be, different levels of commitment and fitness. And the further they walked the more problems they had. Then all of a sudden, Luke quit and Ed was on his own. It was relief and it was a sense of freedom um, at the time. I now look back on that and think if I had had a little bit more um, about me at the time, I would have been able to support Luke. And I think um, the, the, the issues that I had with him, they, they were small and they could have been overcome. Like, he wasn't as good at Spanish, but he would have learned and he wasn't as fit at the time, but, but he would have got fitter. And they, they, were all, they weren't insurmountable and I let little niggles get to me. I would kind of, I'd, I'd kind of just do these little snidey things that would undermine his confidence as well. So the guy was, and, and I'm not proud of this at all, the guy was pretty, pretty broken by the time he left. So I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. It kind of had to happen for the expedition to be a success, I think, bizarrely. I mean, it, 
it, he he had lost heart in the whole thing. He he was always engaged to be married. We were at different stages of life, and we had different level of invest, investment in the expedition, um, and different levels of you know determination to get to the end. And I think you know, for him, quite rightly, he chose his family, and I and I chose the expedition. Ed places a lot of the blame for Luke's departure on his shoulders. He was so focused, so determined to achieve his objective, that anything that stood in his way or jeopardized that, even a friend walking a little slower or missing his girlfriend a little too much, was a threat. It was a risk to achieving that objective. And he feels bad about that, you can tell, because a part of him unconsciously pushed Luke away. But it also had to happen. He had to do it. And he knew that. And Luke probably knew that too. Because to do something as difficult and dangerous as walking the entire length of the Amazon River, there can be no doubt, there can be no cracks in the armor of your will. Especially because of what was just about to come up. They were about to enter the jungle proper and an area known as the Red Zone. The police couldn't even enter the area. It's lawless. It's, it's like it's like bandit country, really. And, um, you know, the... There are these rondeiros that police the area for petty crime and stuff, but but they're, they're drugs traffickers as well. So, you know, it's a crazy place to walk through. And I was in fight or flight mode the whole time. Uh, it was, we were told, even before we set out, that if we stumbled into a drugs processing plant, we'll just disappear and no one will ever hear from us again. That'll be it. And, um, and, you know, we were walking increasingly into these areas where, you know, even in the centre of the town, there's a big concrete... Um, monolith-like statue of a coca leaf. And, um, yeah, increasingly people are shouting angry things out the back of tractors or trucks and stuff, and then, and, 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 and people are warning you that, you, you know, you're going to get killed, you're going to get... You, you can't come through this. And, like, gringo, you're going to die, gringo, you're going to die. The Red Zone is basically a no-go area, even for the Peruvian army. It's the main coca-growing and cocaine-trafficking area of Peru. It's utterly lawless, ridiculously dangerous, and particularly if you're a gringo, essentially impassable. At one point, he hitchhikes a ride back to town to drop off a local guide he'd been walking with for a few weeks who had just decided that it was too dangerous and even he didn't want to go. So a truck picks them up and they jump on the back and they realize suddenly that they are sitting on top of bales and bales of coca leaves. It's that kind of place. So when people are coming up to him and saying, you're going to die if you're walking through here, they kill gringos here. They're not being melodramatic or threatening. They're being helpful. He writes in his diary, I do now think it is possible I will die on this trip. I feel like I'm about to go over the top, that my life is in the hands of fate. But believe it or not, the narcos were the least of his worries. There were two things going on at the same time because the, the indigenous tribes around there have also been badly treated and therefore they live in a state of constant defensive alertness as well against outsiders and people pushing them off their land and stuff again, quite rightly. But, you know, I, I was having concrete thrown over me in one village by an indigenous tribe and, and, and um, you know, plant dye smeared all over my face which was meant to be a big uh, insult or water thrown all over me. And it, it got me down and there were definitely pages in my journal that I wrote, that, that, that I wrote the book from that, that were just streamed in tears. 
The Ashanikas are the name of the indigenous communities that Ed would have to pass through in this section of the Amazon. They're one of the largest indigenous tribes of the Amazon. And just to explain, there are villages and small communities dotted intermittently along the entire length of the river. So particularly in Peru, he wasn't walking through no man's land, as it were, the entire time. He was necessarily having to pass through tribal territories. He couldn't avoid it. And many of those tribes, although they were contacted, still lived very, very traditional lives, subsistence hunting, wearing beads and red face paint, carrying bows and arrows with them. And although they had maybe had the odd missionary over the years who would inevitably arrive by boat, they had never had a six foot one rugby playing white guy just turn up out of the forest. For many, it was the first white person they had ever seen, and it freaked them out. The tribes all thought that white people were called were pelacara, which is literally translated means face peeler. And, and and they thought that white people came into the villages and killed people and and killed children and stole their body parts to sell on the human body part um, uh, market that um, I don't think exists. Maybe I'm naive. I don't know. Um, but um, but um, you know, women would shriek, grab their children, run inside their house, um, and and be terrified of me um, when I was coming through. And again. It all just it all just eats away, you know. After a hard day trekking through the jungle, you haven't got that much energy to deal with the sort of with people being really scared of you. Because then you you have big six foot one like weird looking white person who's really pale and pasty coming out of the jungle, um, shattered. And then I hadn't got the energy to to prove that I wasn't a bad person. It did eat away at him. And you can imagine, right? Walk all day through mosquito-infested jungle, arrive exhausted at a village, and people start screaming and spitting at you and shaming you by throwing water in your face and smearing mud into your mouth. And you know, if you react, you're dead. So it was hard, and the tears flowed heavier and watered those pages of his journal. It went on for weeks, and his bad moods and his exhaustion became full-blown depression. He was on his own, in a place where everyone hated him, doing something that could kill him at any moment, and he had nothing but his own thoughts for company. And his thoughts, because of that, as all our thoughts are liable to do when we're left alone with them for long enough, started to drive him mad. Then, at one particular Ashanika village, right in the middle of nowhere, He caught the eye of someone covered in face paint and beads like everyone else, but a bit taller. And then she stood up and in a perfectly posh English accent said, Hello, my name's Emily. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle 
built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. One of the people that helped me the most in, in understanding the indigenous communities was a Italian anthropologist who I met called Emily, um, who had studied in London, um, but um, she was living in the Shanaka community and, um, and able to explain to me the back history and how they, how they suffered during the time of the Shining Path. And I ended up just feeling fiercely proud of them for defending their land and defending their livelihood. And, and, and so even if there were you know, times where we were getting a bit of attrition going through and, you know, you, you, you're dealing with it in a manner that is respectful, you know, and, and always and always trying to, um, to, to, you know, to be le- as, as, uh, as non-disruptive as possible and, and, and try and be as kind as possible and, 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 and try and always do the right thing. Ed writes, The Ashanikas suffered terribly at the hands of the Shining Path, who were communist terrorists attempting to take over Peru. The government at the time armed them with modern weapons and they fought back. But whole generations of Ashanika males were wiped out and few women over the age of 25 escaped, being repeatedly raped and beaten. Then, as elsewhere in the Amazon, a new threat. Petroleum companies and mining companies that wanted to come and extract oil from under their feet. And then coca invasions, colonial Peruvians taking over indigenous lands by force or trickery. Illegal logging, deforestation... It was no surprise that the Ashanikas looked upon every outsider as a threat. I, I don't have much faith in the Peruvian government and how they look after their indigenous communities. Unfortunately, the, 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 the amount of dam projects and, and um, you know, the selling of the mineral rights below their lands and stuff has been horrific over the years. Um, you know, the, 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 the payoffs that some of the oil companies have paid to tribal chiefs, which has completely destroyed the village because for them it's a huge amount of money like ten thousand pounds but that's to start drilling below their land you know beggars believe so it's enough to destroy the village from a moral perspective because all the chiefs are getting drunk and then beating up their wives um but it's a laughably small amount in terms of what they're giving away and it's extraordinarily sad I, you know tribal wisdom that 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 is so necessary for modern day Westerners for want of a better word to, to learn because you know in terms of sustainability and medicines and how we eat and there's so many areas of, of, of wisdom that I think we could learn from tribes but at the same time there's a lot of elders in tribes who are dying and the young guys are not interested in learning it they just want to go to the nearest town and get a mobile phone with a silly ringtone and, and, and all of that it's, 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 it's sad actually I think it's really sad um but I think it's inevitable as well um, that, the, that this knowledge will die out and the, and the tribal life will die out. The Amazon is the medicine cabinet of the planet. 25% of all prescription drugs derive their ingredients from rainforests. Yet only 1% of tropical plants have been studied for their medicinal potential. That's incredible. Cures for every known disease, AIDS, cancers and others that we haven't even come across yet are out there somewhere in that forest. And the keepers of this knowledge, the people that know where to look and how to use those plants, are the indigenous tribes that have lived there for thousands of years. But their world is shrinking. Industry is eating away at their territory at a staggering rate. 
And without any written language, if a shaman dies before passing on their knowledge, the accumulation of thousands of years of medicinal information comes irreversibly to an end. It's like burning libraries, and the destruction is coming fast. I'll put up details on the website if you want to get involved in the fight to help protect it. But Emily helped Ed understand the indigenous people better, and she also helped him get a permit from CARE, a charity that were working with the tribes to help them. And they went to a nearby town, and he bought presents for the communities he would pass, mostly medicine, and soon he was ready to set off again. There was just one problem. He had lost his guide, and without someone to translate from Spanish into the native Ashanika, he would be in trouble. And then Emily mentioned that the brother of a friend of hers, a forestry worker called Cho, knew the jungle well and the communities around it and was looking for work. Cho agreed to walk with Ed for five days just to help him out of the red zone. But they became friends, and he ended up, unbelievably, spending the next two years walking side by side with Ed. And he helped not just with communication and navigation, but also with the growing depression and mental troubles that Ed had been battling for the last five months. Almost above the the assistance in, in the actual walking through the jungle was just his ability to be sociable. And so that when we were going to a village... He would get people laughing in, in, in seconds and, and, and play with the kids and, and, and win people over. And I think that was actually one of the most valuable assets that, that he had. He was so emotionally stable. Like he didn't have the peaks and troughs. He was just solid. Um, he knew who he was. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. He was embracing an opportunity which he thought was exciting. And um, I owe a lot to him. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually we got through the whole thing together. They got through it together. Cho, this little five foot eight Peruvian who had barely left his home before, singing church songs and smiling his way through the jungle, and a big English lad from Leicestershire who'd had a crazy idea and was determined to see it through to the end. They had high hopes, things were looking up, the weeks were flying by, and then disaster struck. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the one... The one only moment in the expedition, I thought, we're going to die now. We are going to die. This is it. Um, but yeah, the, the day before, we'd called ahead to a village called Pennsylvania with a Y. And, um, and the message on the radio, I just heard this bloke laughing and, and, and um, saying, if a white person walks through, we'll kill him immediately. So we thought we can't walk through Pennsylvania. Um, and so there was a shingle island in the middle of, um, of the river, which was about a kilometre long from memory. And um, Cho came up with the idea, let's paddle out to the island, walk in the middle of the river down this island and, and scoot round Pennsylvania. And, um, and then at downstream end, we'll, we'll, we'll cross over again and, and continue our journey and they won't be any the wiser. Um, but... Um, they were and we got to the downstream it all worked until we got to the downstream point of the island and Cho said look behind you and there was about five dugout canoes coming towards me um, the men that weren't sitting down paddling were standing up with bows and arrows drawn the women had machetes they all had the sort of indigenous face paint on um, um, they were furious and um, and yeah because we'd had a death threat the day before I just thought as they sort of swarmed onto the island um, that we were just going to get hacked to pieces oh My God. Ed writes in the book, My t-shirt clings to my body and sweat pours down my temples. My body is still, but my heart is quickening. Adrenaline pours into my brain, allowing me to process the imminent danger rapidly. 
my perception of time slows down. The brown faces of the Ashenika men and women are warlike and fierce, highlighted by lines of bright red face paint. I notice the women are all clutching machetes. As the boats beach, the tribe leap out and run directly towards us. The men's faces are now taut with anger, eyes wide and white, and the women look possessed. Cho and I are unarmed with nowhere to run, trapped at the tip of the island like animals. Every sense is now alert, and our minds ignore all that is not relevant to immediate survival. Oh. My. God. Very difficult to explain how you dealt with that, what stop them hacking you apart. I always tried to be as non-threatening as possible. I didn't, deliberately didn't cover a weapon. I didn't want to escalate any problems. I'd been in Afghanistan at a time when people had carried weapons in the, on the role that I was doing, which was a UN sort of peacekeeping role, um, illegally, and it had escalated things. And, um, and yet you don't want to come across as weak either. So you're trying to look confident but respectful. You're trying to smile but, but not undermine how serious the situation is and you're reading every single nuance in, in, in their faces and I latterly found out that they were drunk and I didn't realise that they were drunk at the time but so that makes it so much harder because they're not really um, you know they're not, they're not that with it either um, and um, they took us back to their, their village at, at Arrow Point and then, and then they demanded that I take all the different things out of my rucksack and all the village was handing them around and I thought I'm just going to lose all of my stuff but I was pulling out such random things, you know, six foot solar panel rolls and um, satellite phones and computers and stuff like that, that they almost forgot to be angry and were just fascinated by all this kit. So Ed was really smart here. From his time in the army, he knew that confrontations like this tend to calm down gradually over time. So when they told him, at arrow point, machetes drawn to empty his kit, he did so very very slowly, taking each thing out in turn and laboriously explaining what each one did and passing it around and letting everyone hold it, smiling nervously the whole time. And at this point, they were just trying to get away with their life. But what happened next, no one could have anticipated. The tribal chief and his um, brother, Alfonso and Andreas, they were called, um, eventually we came to this sort of... um, after actually quite a lot, many hours of discussion, that they agreed to walk with me um, if I employed them as guides. And I kind of made out it was a big concession. Um, but to walk with Ashanika Indians as well would, would have been, was an amazing thing because they, you know, get to the next village and suddenly it's that we're being introduced by the guys who live in the next village. And so it's, it's not that big a thing anymore. And, you know, I thought they'd walk with us for about three days and they didn't. They walked with us 47 days, I think, they walked with me, which was amazing. And like, they did become really good friends and they were so loyal. And there were villages that, that they think that we would definitely have been killed if I'd walked in with, even with Cho, they think I would have been killed. But we, they threw a party, you know, they had a, they had a big party and we all drank this disgusting wine and, and got drunk together and woke up with hangovers and then walked through So the two chiefs, Alfonso and Andreas, instead of killing Ed, ended up becoming his best friend. And that's lucky because village after village they passed, these tiny, small, barely contacted indigenous communities, they were told if this pelicara, this face peeler, this gringo steals babies and destroys lands, if he had come without you, we'd have killed him for sure. Instead, they got drunk. They had a party. 
That disgusting wine, by the way, is actually a kind of homebrew called Masato made from the yucca plant. And what was a jungle expedition for a while became something more akin to the world's most grueling pub crawl. It was things like that which make the expedition, I, f- I think, for me, extraordinary, is that you could never have planned that. You could never have planned that you're going to need to be held up at arrow point by somebody who's then going to help you not get killed. I mean, it's just this weird, evolving monster of a, of a beast. And once you're committed to it, you've got to just just run with it, really. And, 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 and certainly, Cho and I had an expression, which was when, if we die, we die. And, and again, it wasn't melodramatic at all, but... Oh, there was a, after a certain point, there was no point in worrying every night in your hammock if we were going to die, because if it was going to happen, it was going to happen. Yeah, because the drug traffickers and armed indigenous machete-wielding bowmen weren't the only thing they had to worry about. This is the Amazon jungle, for God's sake. You could get killed in a million different ways. And in fact... They nearly did, many times. They waded through piranha-infested water. They had near misses with giant anacondas and pit vipers, two of the most dangerous snakes in the jungle. When they would cross rivers on foot, they would actually sing out loud to put off the black caiman that were surely swimming alongside them. I don't know if that officially works, but it gave them some confidence. And the river itself was a risk too. They began to enter flood season when the entire basin became drowned. And so their, their path was chest height deep in Amazon River. Imagine that. Imagine walking through murky brown water. You can't see anything beneath the surface. And suddenly... A giant electric eel, deadly to humans, slithers past your chin. Yeah, that happened too. But nothing was worse than the mosquitoes. My original walking partner, Luke, he left and um, probably accidentally um, took all the mosquito repellent with him. And so for three months, we walked without any repellent at all. All day long, I would be hit there, hit there, hit there, hit there, hit there, and, and then just repeat it because... Because there was like 20 on my face at any one time. It was disgusting. It was really disgusting. And like you look at your hand, there's five, and you, and then you wipe them off, and there's just blood streaks all over your hand. In terms of the day, um, Cho and I would take it in turns to walk up front. We thought we're going to walk 50 minutes in every hour. We'll have 10-minute breaks. And of the 50 minutes we're walking, we'll both do 20, 25 minutes up front. And what, was really, what became really important to us is that the person behind didn't challenge the person in front. Um, and that helped on two fronts. One... It doesn't matter which way around the fucking tree you go. You're walking for two years of your life. You can go any way around. So the micro-navigation decisions just didn't matter. So there's no point in challenging the person up front. And then the person behind could switch off. And that was the other nice thing. So he knew that all the responsibilities were the guy up front. And then, we, you know, we'd sit on a rucksack exhausted um, for the 10 minutes in every hour and, 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 and just repeat. Um, the slowest day... I think we did 0.9 kilometers in a full eight-hour walking day, but that was during the flood season when when water was up this high. Literally having to chop through, a, imagine the thickest bramble bush that you've seen underwater, <laughs> and you're chopping through it with a machete underwater, and it's just it's kind of unwalkable, you know. It's, once it gets above head high, what, what, what do you do, <laughs> you know? And so, so, so. Um, I think that's why they thought it's important. You can't walk the Amazon because it's just sheets of Varzea forest and, and water. Um, but you can. You can you can obviously plan a route that, that, that as much as possible goes on hard ground. And no, we did. Um, we did sometimes. If we went above head height and there's literally nothing around us, then we'd kneel at the front of our little inflatable boats and, and, and chop like that until we hit hard ground again. <laughs> 
I don't know, farcical really, quite frankly. I became animalistic after some point. I remember just like having one question that I would ask myself each day. It's like, have you moved forward? And if the answer was yes, nothing else matters. Like enjoyment did not matter. And I know I'm being melodramatic about that. And, and it didn't matter. And, and, and um, as long as I moved forward. And I had a little bit of enjoyment each day when you'd wash, you know, that nice feeling of getting that grime off you. And that made me happy and eating made me happy. But um <laughs> But yeah, it was it was quite it was quite grueling. Quite grueling is like saying the Sahara is quite dry or the universe is quite big. Because what Ed doesn't say there is that he was so meticulous about walking the Amazon that if at any point he covered forward ground through I don't know, for example, floating above flooded parts of the forest or drifting with the river as he crossed it on his inflatable pack raft he would mark that point on the GPS where he'd stopped walking. And when he reached the other side or higher ground, he would double back on foot to the equivalent place he'd mark and walk that section again. At one point, he spent 10 days going back over ground he'd already covered just so that he could walk it again on foot and make sure that he had covered every single step of that 4,000-mile journey. That takes a special kind of will and commitment and determination. And eventually it paid off. They crossed into Brazil and the last leg of the journey, they'd been walking just over a year and they still had 2,000 miles left on foot through some of the toughest jungle on the planet. It was a daunting prospect, but actually it turned out to be the best part of the whole trip. The difference in the way people dress, the social attitudes, the the, the just the open heartedness was 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 amazing. People brought into the expedition. They loved it. They, I thought they would be really annoyed that there's some annoying British person who's walking the length of their river, and they weren't at all. They were just extraordinarily supportive, and 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 everyone was positive. And and okay, we had a few issues with some miners and things like that along the way. Um, uh, a couple of death threats. Yeah, you know, a couple of death threats, no big deal. And there were dangers and there were tough times. The expedition ran out of money. So they were forced to abandon their original plan of walking settlement to settlement along the river, which was expensive, and just forge a completely new path away from the main tributary of the river into the heart of the jungle itself. That was dangerous. It meant no chance of resupply, no chance of a break, and no chance of extraction. If you broke an ankle, if you got bit by a snake, or any number of thousands of little uncontrollable things that might happen, you had to walk days out of the jungle by yourself or you die so it was serious but it was also amazing it was the expedition i wanted it to be it was a jungle expedition it was about it was about snakes and jaguars and and jungly things we didn't have any money so we couldn't afford accommodation um we couldn't afford food so we just headed into the jungle and and, and the further we headed into the jungle the more of a real jungle expedition obviously it came it, it obviously became more um, dangerous as well because we weren't by this we weren't close to the extraction route anymore which was the main channel of the river but um but it was the adventure that i wanted it to be i suppose and so brazil nah, there were just idyllic times where we'd we'd pitch our camp and Cho would go fishing and he he loved fishing i didn't have the patience for it i'd collect firewood and make a fire and and we'd just you know gorge on amazing fish and, and we'd both have our little rolls we wouldn't step on each other's toes and sometimes during the evening we wouldn't didn't really need to chat that much and and 
even things like the canopy was higher um, and it was because the, the rainforest was more primary there was less undergrowth so there was less fighting through it there seemed to be less mosquitoes so the progression was quicker so we made so much better progress in brazil as well than we did in in peru so yeah it's just everything seemed to start coming together and probably we, we were just more competent um we'd found our feet i was less of a bumbling white idiot and actually had been walking through the jungle for a year by that point so i could walk over bridges without falling off them and and stuff like that. Things did start to come together, especially for Ed mentally. The depression which he'd been battling through Peru was slowly abating. And the reason why was he took control of it. The jungle had humbled him and that process of being humbled was hard. But eventually it allowed him to build himself back up again in a way that he was more conscious of, more proud of, that was based more firmly in who he really was rather than the insecurities that had led him on this trek and which he had to carry with him throughout. The indigenous people were friendlier too and more welcome so he didn't have to be on his guard. He even started singing in some of Cho's epic Sound of Music-esque evangelical singing. And he taught Cho how to play rugby by passing the water bowl back and forth through the trees. But that's not to say it was easy. They also nearly starved. They did get flooded and had to cross long stretches nearly underwater the whole way. They had to cut their way through fields of razor grass, which he describes as like getting a thousand paper cuts at once if the paper had been dipped in glue and crushed glass. It rained for months ceaselessly. He was never dry, never clean. He would put on wet, sodden clothes every morning and they would just get wetter and more sodden through the day. They were covered in ticks. He had a bot fly living in his head. And despite the beauty of the forest and their growing friendship, he says there were times where it would feel like a kind of repetitive, endless prison sentence forcing their way through somehow the same impenetrable green day after day after day until finally they reached the end. But there was one challenge left. We'd mistaken, we are using Google Earth to navigate at that point, and we'd mistaken a, a um, disused telegraph pylon for a road, and, and it wasn't, it was, it was just a mass of razor grass and, and um, brambles and thorns and stuff, so we were delayed spilling out onto this road network that was by Belém, and um, we had about two weeks of caning it down the roads and, and, and only getting about two hours sleep each night because we had so much, so many kilometres to do. I'd stupidly booked both flight home and, and, and also um, I'd, I'd sort of put pressure on myself by um, organising for some press to be at the end. And um, I think about 21 hours before we were due to um, get to the beach, um, I sort of um, said to Joe, I'm utterly exhausted, I need to have a rest. And, and Cho being... Um, a little bit politically non-correct, accused me of being gay. I'm just going to ignore the politically incorrectness of Cho's statement because, you know, I'm sure he didn't mean it like that. And I'm just going to go with the sentiment behind it because, to be honest, you've just walked the Amazon River. Whatever you are, you're not a wimp. But it was those final miles, 50 miles in a single last push, a single day to be exact, that nearly broke him. He passed out on the street. Literally, he passed out on the last day. His body couldn't go on. But Cho picked him up and after resting a few hours, they stood up again in the middle of the night and started walking somehow. And as the sun rose, as that dawn broke on that last day, he knew they were close to the end. They had reached the Atlantic Ocean. We could smell the, smell the salt in the air, you know, when you're by the seaside, and then you could hear the sounds of 
the waves crashing and then um, when we rounded the corner, I just saw the Atlantic Ocean stretched out in front of us and, and um, just instinctively grinned at each other and shrugged off our rucksacks and ran down the beach and, and for some reason we started holding hands as we ran into the sea as well. So it's like, well, the one day the world's media is looking at you and you're holding hands with your new Peruvian friends skipping into the ocean. So, um, yeah, it was, good, it was a good day. They dropped their bags on the beach and ran into the ocean hand in hand, totally unconsciously. They just kind of grab each other's hands like a couple of little kids on the way in. It's such a beautiful moment, and I will link to the images and videos from it so you can see the accomplishment and just the pure joy on their faces. It's incredible. And for Cho, perhaps even more so because he had never seen the sea before. What a first glimpse that must have been. Ed writes at the end of the book, it was over. Nine million odd steps, over 200,000 mosquito and ant bites each, over 8,000 kilometers walked, over 860 days, 733 of them with Cho, about 600 wasp stings, a dozen scorpion stings, 10 HD video cameras, six pairs of boots, three GPSs, and one Guinness World Record. My chest swelled with pride and satisfaction. It was a day I will never forget for the rest of my life. No one would ever take that away from us. But for Cho, that wasn't the end of the adventure. He ended up going back to England with Ed and putting some of those water bottle rugby skills to the test. He really wanted to learn English, so um, and because really, he wanted to, really wanted to come over to England, so he, he was with us for about five months, I think. Um, and um, lived with my mum up in Leicestershire, played rugby with my local rugby club and got Overseas Player of the Year at the uh, end of season dinner, which was nice. I mean, there are not many overseas players in our club, I have to admit. Um, but um, no, he loved it. And when he, when he left, he said, I've got more friends in Leicestershire than I have got in, um, in Peru, which was sweet. Everyone looked after him. He lived, he lived at my mum's, but the rugby club would take it in turns to drive to my mum, pick, pick, pick him up, and then drive him back at the end of the night. Um, probably being sick and all sorts of stuff but um, yeah they looked after him I love that he won overseas player of the year and the fact that he was the only overseas player that year or probably any year doesn't matter one bit he earned that and just like Ed he's gone on to do some awesome things helping to guide other Amazonian expeditions and offering guided trips for travellers too so I will link to his website as well in case you're interested and for Ed well That trip changed his life. The world suddenly knew his name. A documentary was produced by Discovery about the trip. He filmed the entire thing. The book was a bestseller, and I'd highly recommend it. You can find the link on the website. And then he just kind of carried on with the crazy things. He spent 60 days marooned on an island. He got left for dead in all sorts of crazy places. And eventually, he ended up in China in a flimsy Gore-Tex jacket, racing a caveman through the monsoon. The series is called Ed Stafford, first man out it launches september 24th 2020 and please do check that out i think it's great but more than that i think he's great because for someone who did maybe the most macho thing i've ever heard of there is not a macho show-off bone in his body he began the adventure in his own words as an insecure volatile young man but it sparked in him an internal journey that's maybe just as important and interesting as the one that he had to walk Adventure for Ed isn't just about learning to survive the world out there. It's about learning to survive the world in here. Adventure is the crucible 
in which you find yourself. I needed to fall apart. I needed for my current sort of system of managing my life to just break down in order to build it up again. And I'd gone through my whole life um, with developed a sort of reflected sense, reflected sense of self. I think that's what it's called. Because um, I'm adopted, cause, um, because um, um, my whole character was based on, you know, trying to, having been rejected, I suppose, by my natural parents, I suppose, as an infant, I I tried to please people around me in order to be loved. So you, you, end, you end up doing things for other people so that they, I don't know, you walk into a room, you tell a joke, they laugh, and you go, brilliant, I'm funny. Or you walk the length of the Amazon and they say, you're super tough, and you go, oh, cool, I'm super tough. Um, and it's nonsense, isn't it? It's utterly ridiculous. It is nonsense, but it's something we're all caught up in. Our sense of who we are comes from, all too often, what we think other people think of us. Not even what other people actually think of us, just what we think they think of us, which is an important distinction because it shows that it's totally and utterly in our control. For Ed, it took walking the Amazon and also later adventures whilst being marooned on the island alone for that system to break apart and collapse. And in doing that, in collapsing, it became visible to him. He was able to see it and build it up again, consciously, in a way that he chose, in a way that was positive for himself and others in the world around him. He says he walked the Amazon to prove something to the world, to prove that he was tough because he thought he needed that validation for it to be true. But what he realized in doing it was that that validation doesn't have to come from outside. In fact, it can't for it to be really true and really strong. It has to come from the inside. You have to build it and create it and manifest it in yourself. And for Ed, the catalyst, the crucible, the vessel, the place in which that recreation, that breaking down and building up again is able to happen most fluidly and effectively is adventure. You've got so many factors playing. You've got more perspective because you're away from home. So you can kind of look at your whole life. You've got more time. Um, If you're on your own, clearly you've got more time to to reflect and and more ability to become self-aware. There's so many different things going on. And yet I think it's... um, I owe the fact that I am a dad and, and, and a husband to going on these adventures, I think. I, don't, I can't see that if I'd stayed in my local town doing a normal job, that I would have been able to have all of the experiences that have enabled me to learn and change and adapt in the same manner. I think I, I wouldn't have been able to open my mind in the same manner. Um, you know, and, and, um, and therefore, I'm extremely grateful to the whole thing. It's not about the adventure itself for me. That's a crucible in which, in which you can get to know yourself so that you can contribute more to, to, to life and to other people. So I do feel like I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not the volatile um, man that, that, that began that, that, that big expedition and that, and that I'm a, a more mature version. And maybe that would have just happened in time, but I think it's, um, it's been massively helped by, by adventures. Yeah. And that change that happened in himself also happened to his sense of the Amazon. Before it had been fearful, he says, before it had been something to conquer. Now it's home. And it is a home, a home for all of us. The Amazon rainforest is the largest tropical rainforest on Earth. It is the home of 400 billion trees, 400 billion more trees than stars in the Milky Way. 20% of the world's oxygen is produced by this forest. One-fifth of the world's fresh water is stored in its basin. The Amazon rainforest is more than a precious ecosystem. 
it is the lungs and the life force of the planet itself. The Amazon is as essential to our survival as the air we breathe. It is the air we breathe. But to see it firsthand, to walk the length of this incredible river as Ed did, is to see it in a way that almost no one else has or ever will. And it's to know its size, but also its interconnectedness. To realize in an instant how fantastically bizarre and precious and teeming with amazement this world really is and how we're a part of it. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for taking us on this amazing journey. You know about the new series, First Man Out, but I also want to let you know that Ed has just launched a new Bushcraft Academy. It's totally online. You can do it anywhere in the world. It's really affordable and it will enhance your adventures and your explorations wherever they may be. The website is bushcraft.academy and please do check that out. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this community. And remember, the more you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. Dare to be truly alive.